Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, I got to meet the wonderfully hospitable Karen from Capriolus Fine Foods. Now, when David Richards was made redundant from his sales director role, finding a new one at 50 years of age was very hard. Luckily, he had always loved cooking and smoking cups of meat in the garden. So when his wife Karen suggested there might be a business in curing meats, they decided to give it a shot. And here we are 10 years later and their company, Capriolus, Priolus Fine Foods has won countless awards for its ever-increasing range of mouth-watering charcuterie and smoked foods, from pancetta and air-dried pork loin to the magnificently named Rampersham Tingler Salami. So in this week's podcast, you are going to discover why it's so important to get the right sort of business funding in place, if you can, and why the fat of rare breed animals is the star of good charcuterie and what it's like dealing with the challenge of restaurant food crazes where smoked venison might suddenly be replaced with air-dried beef and you realize with a sinking heart you've no venison on the premises i learn a huge amount and i very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation Hello, Karen. Thank you so much for sparing the time uh, to talk uh, all things charcuterie and capriolas. Much appreciated. Thank you, Mark. What a nice opportunity. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and it's a beautiful sunny day. I've yes. just driven across the Dorset countryside. Yes. Can you set the scene? Where where on planet <laughs> Earth am I today? You are in the village of Rampersham, which we also call Dampersham because it rains a lot. Um, we're halfway up a hill here um, in the middle of the countryside, uh, surrounded by wild garlic and deer and badger and rabbits. They all eat my garden. And it's just beautiful. We're very, very lucky in a little thatched cottage with a barn at the end of the garden. Oh, you have painted a perfect picture and it's true. And I've, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful sunny day and you've just given me a lovely tour. So I've seen the poly tunnel and I've found lots of meat hanging up and drying. The smell of the smokery is amazing. And uh, even my dog has been allowed in and you've made me a beautiful lunch. So I've already uh, had a phenomenal day. Good. So uh, thank you so much. Good. So uh, we're, yeah, we're going to you know chat about all sorts of things. But can you just explain how did this journey begin into Charcuterie? How have you ended up here? Well, my husband was a director of a nanotechnology company and they were developing these amazing batteries that probably would have changed the world. Um, But unfortunately, when they tried to scale this up in a factory situation, they couldn't get it to work properly. And the investors at the time said, "Mm -mm, we're not spending another whatever it was, 35 million pounds or something to get this thing to work. So at the age of 50, my poor old hubby suddenly discovered that he was out of work. Um, And at the age of 50, everything that you've ever heard about the exit lounge is all true. So the poor old fella had no job. Um, and my brother-in-law is a civil engineer and my husband said to him, have you got any jobs? And he said, well, I've got some labouring jobs. He said, that's great. I will do anything. I will not be out of work. So off he toddled and was out, you know, on the building yards and all the rest of it. Uh, they called him Posh Dave, which we thought was quite amusing. I, I don't think it was that friendly to begin with, but after a while they became quite fond of him. And he would, uh, he would, he would, come home and he'd say to me well I, I took the telegraph with me and uh, they were fighting over it and I said really they were fighting over the telegraph and he said well yes because it's better if you sit on it it soaks up more water <laughs> and he'd come back and say things to me like well I had the company roller today I said wow the company roller he said yes but as you go over rough ground it's very you know like this and I thought oh 
the wrong roller. Yeah. That's okay. Flat, flat How yeah. long ago was this? Oh, gosh, this was a good 10, 11 years okay. ago. Um, and unfortunately, because he was 50 and the recession at that time had mm. just hit, it was jolly hard. He was applying for lots of things. So I looked at this poor old soul and I said to him, you, you can't do this for the rest of your life. It's really not a goer. Um, and he's he's always loved food. He's a, he's got a bit of a tummy. Please don't put that in. <laughs> uh, Does he yes. know? Is that be the first no, he knows. That? He's he's lovely. He's very cuddly. Uh-huh. But um, he loves his food. He loves cooking. He loves flavors. He's always played with food. And he had a little smoker in the garden, and he used to smoke venison and anything else he could lay his hands on. Um, and I said, well, let's have a look at this. Maybe there's a business in this. So we started with bacon, all the things that people start with. I have to say, the first bacon was completely inedible. It was so salty. It was just awful. Awful. Um, because, of course, you follow other people's recipes and you get books and things. And he said, oh, that's that's no good. So then he started to develop his own recipes and what have you. Uh, and we, we went on to venison and we, we started to make other things. And I think when you start a business, lots of people say to you, they're your friends and they're your family. Oh, there's a business. You should start a business. Not good advice, as it turns out. I think um, most people, if you're going to start a business, just ignore your friends and family. And whatever it is you're producing, it give it to somebody you don't know who's in the business. So with us, it was chefs. So we were lucky enough to come across uh, Tim Adams, bless him, from River Cottage, who's subsequently become a great drinking, uh, sorry, not a drinking <laughs> friend, um, a great friend, uh, lovely, lovely guy. Um, and we used to give things to him to try and he would give us genuine feedback. I don't like this. I do like this. This is great. That's not great. And and it's absolute gold because it's it's the sort of feedback you need when you start anything like this. Um, and so from that, we started to develop a few other products. We were getting braver about what we were doing. We knew we wanted to to be careful about provenance, so we were really careful about the, the meat we were sourcing. We decided that because charcuterie is very slow to produce, what we must not do is use any old rubbish. It's got to be the best meat we can lay our hands on. So we started visiting small farms and slightly bigger farms. Um, so things like our air-dried beef, for example, we're using PGI grass-fed beef. So it's from the West Country. It has its own PGI status. um, And we know what we're getting. We're getting something really excellent. We're not so worried about um, free range. Oh, free range we're worried about. We're not so worried about organic. Um, We are worried about the husbandry and and the slaughter as well. It's hugely important how that's done. Um, And then you will get the right meat and it's it's good meat and it produces a good product because you're starting with the right thing. Mm. And you mentioned organic there and, and not being too worried about that. Why is that? Well, I love the idea of organic. Um, I have two theories about organic. One is that some of the organic farms are wonderful, and I have seen some amazing farms, and some of them are not. But because they have an organic tag, uh, people say wonderful, wonderful, and the price is high, but it's actually not the product that you always want. Um, Free range, on the other hand, it tends to be a farmer has got an animal that he loves. He looks after it. The husbandry is good. He cares about that animal. He's not necessarily worried about feeding it with organic, but he is concerned about how it's how it's bred, how it's looked after, you know, and how it's fed. So you often find that those are the farms to head for. Mm. And again, wild animals, they cannot actually be organic unless they're farmed. Mm. So if you had wild venison, for example, it's the most wonderful meat, but because they can't guarantee what it's eating and where the food's coming from, it can't be organic. So it, it doesn't actually really work for us. And the other thing is, as you're growing, um, organic can be a problem because there just would not be enough organic producers out there to ensure that we had the flow of things that we needed um, to, to, to pass on to our customers. Mm. No, that's a really good explanation. I think it's so important to really know where your produce is coming from. Yes. For me, it's exactly the same. Yes. It's meet the person behind it. And, yes. uh yeah, and understand that they really care about the animals and they care about farming. Because it's all about organic, love. Yeah, yes. I mean, food just used to be organic, didn't it, yes. back in the day? That's why yes. you can't make uh, yeah wild animals organic, isn't it? That's just the way it was. <laughs> and now we have to give an accreditation, which is uh, which is challenging. But uh, yeah, much as there are good things um, Well, accreditations it, so. have their place because they, yeah. they send a message to people to it's, say yeah. what you're eating has conformed to a certain set of rules. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, it's safe or it's well produced or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I did another podcast actually with Helen Browning from the Soil Association 
conversation all about organic. So if anybody wants to dive into that, they can go Excellent. and listen to that one where there's yeah. a whole hour about it. But uh, <laughs> but for you, yeah, clearly you're in a great place to source really good quality yes. ingredients and to know your local farmers. Sorry, that's my dog. It's all right. There's a few in the background. <laughs> we got three it's great. Of them, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's quite a warm all day. Joining so there's in. lots of panting. It's not you and I, is it? <laughs> no, we're, no. Uh, we're fine. But yeah, they're, 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 they're doing it. Um, so, uh, yeah, how does that start to turn into a business? And you start to get some feedback. You're doing it quite small scale. Presumably at some point you needed to invest in, because in, you need you need some toys, don't you? You, you, need, you uh, do. I mean, you you know, the first thing you do is go onto eBay or, or wherever you can and you find the first slicer. I remember buying the first vacuum packer from um, uh, a company that sold vacuum packers. And this chap turned up. And at that stage, we lived in this gorgeous old grade two listed house. <laughs> Um, and he said, oh, do you have anyone around to help lift it because it's incredibly heavy? And I said, no. So we got the wheelbarrow and the pair of us somehow got this thing into the wheelbarrow and sort of wheeled it over to the garage where we started. <laughs> so, yes, it, it's, it, we started to buy things um, and gradually we've, we've moved on to better and better equipment as you go through yeah. time. But, yes, you start with whatever you can find, really. Yeah. So yeah. how quickly did it grow and turn into a, you know, a, a viable business? Was it part-time to start with whilst you were doing other things or straight away was uh, it all no, we, we decided to go for it yeah. um, and we 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 decided to actually try and sort of sell to people like the National Gallery in River Cottage and at that stage they were customers of ours um, and that was quite nice because they were somewhat prestigious. It gave us a bit of a message that actually maybe we had something that was going to be okay. And once you get the courage to start to sell, it then becomes quite good fun. <laughs> and, you, you know, the worst that can happen is someone's going to say no. Most people won't be rude to you or anything else. You just go out there and you say, would you like to try this? Yes. Would you like to buy this? Yes or no. I mean, that's really where you are. But people buy from people they like. Um, most people want to know the story of where things are from. So you will be asked all of that. And it's it's really just a case of telling them who you are and what it is you're doing. Perhaps get the chefs down to come and try, give them a stonking lunch or whatever. And, and it's great fun. And we get to play with some amazing chefs who do some astonishing things with our meats. I love to find out what they're all doing because they're all doing different things. Yeah. And it's just filled with imaginative people. It's great fun. And were the chefs already uh, open? Because, um, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier before we, we went uh, on, on air about the fact that this was a very continental thing and it felt yes. like charcuterie was predominantly something that you had when you were abroad and you were in France with some red wine and stuff like that. That's so, it. And that seems to have changed a lot in the la last 10 years. But 10 it years really ago... Has. 10 years ago, it was pretty hard. We used to find that it was an education. We'd say to people, would you like to buy our Guan Charlie? And they'd look at you as if you had two heads, and sometimes they yeah, still do. One of your children? <laughs> one of our children, yes. So we, what we, we would have to do with some of our products was to explain what they were uh, and get people to taste them and also to tell them what to do with it, you know. So a Guan Charlie, I've just said something that probably most people won't have heard of. But if you're using a pig, you want to use every little bit you can. So this is from the cheek of the pig, and it's a kind of pancetta, but pancetta is normally made from the belly. But this, this is a pancetta that's very fatty, very full of flavour, and it's absolutely fantastic for carbonara. So once people know, ah, oh, I can do that with it, or I can cut it into strips and wrap it around a bit of chicken or a piece of asparagus and fry it, or whatever it is I want to do, once they get that, then you're off. They, they then sort of come back and say, what else have you got? Sorry, the phone's going Sorry, in the background. Yeah, no um, what else have you got? What else do you make? What else can I play with? So we, there's a two-way street going with, with yeah. uh, chefs. And where did that knowledge come from, then your own knowledge? Did you, you know, have an interest in this? Well, we, we're terrible pigs. We love our food. Right. Uh, no, we're entirely self-taught. Right. Um, my husband is is a great player. He, he loves to play with food, uh, loves to learn things. We didn't go to the continent. Some people who make charcuterie do the proper thing, go to the continent, find out how they're doing it. We didn't do that. We thought, well, let's see whether we can make this. Let's give it a, as a sort of Dorset flavour or a British flavour. So we're going to try and source things a little more carefully. We'll, we'll start with the recipes that perhaps come from Europe because people recognise something like a Sousi Sans Sec, for example. But then we can do our own thing with it. So we produce things like the Dorset Rosette. Well, the influence for that is the Rosette de Lyon, in France, which is a particular flavour, we didn't know what was in the recipe, so we made up our own version and we call it the rosette. And then we came out with the Rampsham Tingler, which gives you a little tingle as you're eating it. Makes people laugh. I always think it sounds a bit Anne Summers, but there we are. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have the Dorset Warmer Salami, so the, the name speaks for itself. But we're trying to give names to things 
where we can, if it's a new product that nobody on the continent would have ever thought of having, um, then we do. Sometimes we do use the traditional name. So if we're making something like a copper, C-O-P-P-A, we still call it a copper because anyone who knows food will understand what a copper is. A copper, I should explain, is is sort of the neck fillet of the pig. It's the most glorious piece of meat. Um, it's a cannon. It's called a cannon as well. And, and you cure it and you eat it a bit like an air-dried ham or perhaps you can fry it and use it with, with I don't know, have, have a lovely egg in the morning. It's gorgeous. Um, it's, it's a wonderful, sweet, slightly peppery meat. It's, it's beautiful. Um, but we use names, so we don't use all the names. So something like an air-dried beef, we call Dorset air-dried beef <laughs> because if we called it Brasola, we would be breaking uh, a rule because it's, it's a protected status, a protected name uh, from Lombardy in Italy. So you had to be a bit careful. So, okay. yeah, there's a bit, of, a bit of everything. Same with some of the English sparkling wines that have the yes. same problem where they're not yes. allowed so to they use So they have to say the... method champagne wines yeah, rather yeah, yeah, than yeah, champagne. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yes, and Prosecco absolutely. and all that kind of stuff. Yes, so yes. it's brilliant. As a restaurateur, it was so exciting when um, I think partly it was a customer demand for more charcuterie. I think maybe yes. we're travelling more or just our yes. tastes are getting a little bit more refined. Um, but when we actually managed to start finding people like you who were doing it in the UK, because I can never understand... Yeah, why you know why we don't make enough of certain products that you can get on the continent? Some of it you get, I guess, is probably weather. A little bit like the wine, it's probably harder to have a vineyard. Yeah. And I suppose some of the drying techniques in Europe are presumably different to the UK. They they, they tend to be, except on a commercial basis where they have great big factories with sort of special conditions. But yes, if you go to if you go to um, certain parts of uh, France, for example, they produce their own charcuterie. Every village has its own charcuterie. Um, they tend to have better weather than we do for this kind of thing. England, it yeah. can be a little damp, as can Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and so on. It can be a little damp. Um, and, and that poses real problems. Humidity is a problem um, in certain parts of producing what, what you're doing. Uh, I think also because there wasn't a tradition of it. I mean, people used to slap bits of bacon uh, up their chimneys to, to, to smoke it and that kind of thing. So we've always done that, but we've never really cured meats in the way that we are now doing. Um, and I do think people have gone abroad and they said, oh, this is fabulous. And they want to eat those meats um, and they want to come home and, and have them. So they were buying them uh, from the from the shops uh, and what have you. The other problem is really it's the cost of production because in the UK, we do not have the right conditions. So David and I have had to build special rooms. We've rather cobbled them together. They're not uh, not sort of off-the-shelf kind of rooms. Um, but we've had to build rooms to make sure we have got special conditions to make our salamis and our air-dried meats and what have you. So it does put the cost up because you're using electricity and things. It's unavoidable. Mm. So in, in Europe, where it's more traditional, what would they be doing? Is it more kind of, you know, barns that are just heated? But is it in, in, in the mountains? Yeah, where I mean, you hear they... stories of Italian families who have one pig and every year the, the, there's a big day when they, they slaughter the pig and then they, they get all the bits and the whole family comes in and they just turn it into all the charcuterie that they possibly can. And you still hear people saying that, that, that oh, my grandmother still does that and my mother still does that. So it's a lovely tradition. We don't have that tradition here. I don't think really we may have had something similar in the past, but we don't have that tradition anymore. And I've completely forgotten what you asked no, me. No, no, that's right. yeah. I, I mean, that must probably comes from the weather, I guess, in the fact that yes. we don't have that tradition. I yes. suppose it was just because before we had electricity. I think we used to, to salt everything heavily to yeah, preserve yeah, it. And yeah. certainly when you've got ships going out, people just packed great vats of salt around mm. the meat. So it was almost inedible. I would think it gave you the most awful heartburn. Mm, yeah. But it preserved it. So you did have something to eat in the middle of the sea yeah. so or the middle of the winter in a cottage like we live in the, in a cottage here that the only way to preserve your meat was to salt it heavily yeah. and okay. preserve it that way and then you um i know you've you're sort of famous for your uh you know using rare breeds and using whole animals and where you know where again does that interest come from is that based just on on flavor or what's available locally flavor, yeah and the rare breeds are interesting because they're, they're dying out for a reason and the main reason being that the housewife has been told that fat is wrong. So these lovely old breeds um, are covered in it. And so there are what they call PIC pigs, pig improvement company pigs. And they are bred so they don't have too much fat on so that the housewife can go and she can say, I'd like a bit of bacon or a chop, but I don't want all the fat on the outside. The older breeds tend to have a lot more marbling in If they're beef, they might have a beautiful bit of marbling going through them. Or they might have a lovely thick slab of beef on, uh, beef, a big slab of fat on the outside. 
But it is essential in charcuterie to have that wonderful fat because you've got the flavour in there. And as you're curing and fermenting meat, it changes the texture of the fat. So you end up with something really special. You get a wonderful mouthfeel, a beautiful texture. If you're cooking with certain fats, you will get this gorgeous, silky deliciousness going on as you're cooking. So the guanciale I mentioned is a main ingredient for a true carbonara. And it is a fatty thing, but you put it in and you get this wonderful, wonderful flavour, and it's very genuine. So fat is essential for us. We even have a, a fellow down in the uh, down near Minehead, actually, and he's got some uh, large white pigs. Actually, I beg your pardon, middle white pigs. And we said to him, do you think you could feed them like amateur, like an amateur gardener, a farmer? I'm sorry, my worms are getting middled, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you could if you could overfeed them, I don't mean stuff them like geese, you know, but, but just let them eat what they want. And then we get this lovely big fat layer on them. We can actually use that for lardo, which is a very special, it's called white gold. It's a really special thing, but it's really hard to get two or three inches of fat these days on an animal. So yes, bless him, he feeds them. They're terribly happy pigs. And then we get what we want as well. That's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) And these breeds then would be dying out if there wasn't, you know, this is a new demand, because it'd be a shame to lose that kind of history as to... Well, uh, the history's there and the flavour is there. mm. You know, we we deal with uh, various producers. We've got um, Sam of Sam pigs now he's got oxford sandy and black pigs and they are just the most gorgeous flavor they're very fatty again but oh the flavor is divine and what he is doing he's got this wonderful bit of uh, native woodland uh, and they go into the woods at certain times of the year and they're eating beech mast they're eating acorn which makes the meat very dark and absolutely delicious and we managed to persuade him to get the the um the, the way from one of the cheese herds so i believe he gets it from blue vinnie or one of the cheese herds and feeds this to the pigs. There was a story of one pig that used to just sit. I think it was called Winston. Used to just sit in a in a, a trough waiting when he saw this way coming with his mouth open. Just oh boy, this is so good, you know. So they're terribly happy eating it. Um, it brings his food cost down, but what it does, it gives you this amazing meat. It's just beautiful. So the more of that kind of thing we can encourage, the better. Um, we do a smoked mutton, and we were getting um, at one point from a farm down uh, in Dartmoor, and this this these animals have been out there the sheep had been eating heather and I don't know whether the flavor should come through but something floral was happening and the meat was astonishing Uh, we had another lady with her large blacks down in Cornwall and she was feeding them with chestnuts and the meat was almost black but golly it was fabulous so we can't get hold of the rare breeds very often they tend to be hobby farmers who have them because they're high they're high effort they 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 tend to try and kill themselves quite quickly I mean they're difficult breeds quite often um but if you can do it then actually you have something really special they're not commercially viable most most butchers would look at you as if you're mad because actually they don't want meat covered in the fat or you know they people like the idea of them but most housewives, I think, would go and buy the, the bit of pink meat from Tesco's or wherever they go, um, which hasn't been hung properly because they think they're getting something that, that they can cook with. The reality actually is not quite right, I don't think. Right. So how do you find these people? Do they approach you now or are you just uh, constantly Yeah, we get and lots, of, lots of phone calls. Um, so And also with the small guys, they only produce one pig at a time or one right. cow at a time or a few ducks or whatever it happens to be. So the throughput from one farmer isn't going to be very much. So you do need other people to say, oh, I've got one pig and it's ready to go on or whatever. So that's yeah, how that okay. works. Yeah. And then as um, certainly, in because it's most of your supply to the restaurant trade rather than presumably to... Um... Yes, we sell a bit to all sorts, but for some reason the chefs have really said, woohoo, yes, we really want this. So most of our business now is restaurants. Okay. Um, we are about to try and change that. We're going to try and really start pushing out to shops a little bit more because I know people love it and it's, yeah. it's a shame not to be doing that we do sell to one or two places like i don't know gloucester services take it yeah. and um one or two little farm shops and things but we haven't really pushed it very hard and yeah. we so, so there's certainly been a growth in uh, in the interest of it and 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 i've certainly noticed it in my restaurants um 
Has it evolved much in, in terms of the products? Have they actually changed in the last 10 years? Are you, are you still using the same recipes or are you having to constantly kind of uh, no, evolve No, no, lots of new things. Change? I mean, once you start and you realise just how exciting it is, there are so many wonderful things you can use. And not just us, there are other farmers doing, the, uh, other producers doing things. There's a chap um, in Suffolk or Sussex and he's doing, he's getting cob nuts and putting those in his salamis. And then you've got Anya up in Scotland and she's using wild venison and she's going out and getting the berries uh, you know in the in the fens to uh, not the fens I'm sorry guys I'm getting this all wrong but you understand Scotland and the the the, the ground that they have up there it's but definitely north I know definitely, definitely well north, yes yeah. definitely north and uh, but people are using the things around them to actually produce things that are now British our smoked mutton is 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 British we're using wonderful smoked mutton nobody I don't think on the continent is doing anything like it um I think if you go to Norway and places they have a tradition of using um of mutton or lamb or hogget but smoked mutton um yes that we have developed that and it is a British product absolutely through and through so yes we keep moving on we keep trying new things my husband is just playing with a new recipe for a cooked salami um and that's going to have pine nuts in it and and chunks of meat and chunks of fat and all the rest so not a mortadella maybe we should call it dorsadella if you guys nice. can think of a new like name it. come up and give me a new name um we've come up with the dorset soft salami which is a soft spreadable salami um so that people can use it like a pate we've even come up with hard brexit and soft brexit Love it. <laughs> which so seemed topical. like a theme you know yeah um, which is so- more popular uh, actually, the soft breaks, it? It? Oh, but on. whether yeah. it's a better recipe or <laughs> or whether it's a, a, yeah, whether a political thing. That's why they're ordering it. They're making a, sta- a statement. I don't know. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, who knows? Um, and and uh, does a lot of the innovation there come just through um, through trial and error, or the chefs actually giving you feedback and saying, "Hey, we'd really like this." Could no, you tweak my that husband lies in bed at night and he says, "Wouldn't it be fabulous if?" And then out comes the next recipe. You know, so a lot of it's from him. He, he drives all of the recipes. They're okay. all his are you, recipes. Are you chief taster. It, mainly, yes, and I have, I have, uh, I have lots of friends who are quite keen. I was going to say, are you honest? Because you said earlier that it needs to be somebody that's less uh, less involved. I think to give the well, honest feedback. Well, the trouble is, I'm surrounded by it all day and every day, so I don't eat it all the time. And then when I do eat it, it's a constant surprise. Wow, this is good, you know. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, and then, so if the if the products are evolving, you've clearly got some kind of long time scale. Some of your stuff takes, I don't know, a year or more to produce. Yes. How on earth do you go about managing supply? And then chefs yeah. are fickle and they change their mind. When a new fad comes along. <laughs> They've got to change the menu because we've just got to keep it interesting for the customers. How on earth do you manage that? That that is a trick. We're a tiny little business. So obviously you have to look at your pot of money and say, well, now what are they going to want this Christmas? Uh, And one Christmas they'll all want air-dried beef. And the next Christmas you think, right, they wanted air-dried beef. I'm going to make lots of air-dried beef. But no, they'll come and they'll say, oh, could I please have air-dried pork loin? Or could I please have air-dried ham? Or whatever it happens to be. So um, we gradually are building our support stocks up after Christmas we're pretty cleaned out I think this is the first Christmas we didn't run out of something um but you 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 have to watch that watch things like the Great British Menu just see what the chefs are telling each other they're using so if they're all using lardo then we know we'll probably get a run on lardo tv programs do for for a few weeks suddenly make things sell in a different direction so if duck conf is featured then you suddenly have to make lots of that but it's fairly quick so that's not quite the same problem um it, it is a it is a trial it is difficult but I think it's like anything have a conversation with the chefs if they look as though they're going to put something on the menu tell them what your stocks look like and tell them what alternatives you're likely to have so we have a a pub group at the moment that's taking our air dried ham uh, and they're taking it for three months and we're almost at the end of it but we are nearly at the end of our air dried ham so they know that when we get to the end of it they will be then going on to the dorset copper or the air dried pork loin because they can use it in a similar way but yes it's very important to talk and sometimes chefs don't they sometimes just put something on a menu uh, which can be a bit of a shock if you haven't made whatever it happens to be <laughs> any, so, any great examples where all of a sudden an order's come in and I won't gone, tell you the name oh, of the customer goodness. but we had one very well known customer who uh, put on I think uh, 15 restaurants they put um, uh, smoked venison on their menu now that particular year we had not done any venison because we were a bit tight for money and we just hadn't bought in the venison we'd rather assumed they were going to buy beef and other things so we didn't see them coming um, and of course it caused it caused a, a huge headache because it had all their menus printed so chefs if you're listening please tell us what you want and we'll make it because <laughs> how long which is the longest product to make and what's the actual oh, process oh air dried ham air-dried is ham. definitely so how do you the go longest about making an 
the air dried ham. Well, the air dried ham, you've got two main muscles. You've got the culatello and the fioccia. The best bit is the culatello. Uh, so you've got it's like a front and a back of the leg, if you can visualize your leg. Um, if we did it traditionally, we would leave the bone in um, and then we would have to hang it for a minimum two years, possibly five years. It's that sort of deal. It takes a long, long time. In actual fact, what we do is we tunnel bone out the bone uh, and then we can sort of push the thing together with, with tight netting. It sounds like sort of <laughs> tights, doesn't it? But um, we, we, we push it all together to close that hole up. Um, and by doing that, it actually dries a little bit quicker. And then within... Within a year, we should have something. We, we test it. We test the pH levels and we test the water activity. And when it's reached a critical point, then you know it should be okay. You can start to slice it. If it isn't, you then put it back in the drying rooms to carry on drying. It's, it is scientific in that we test for things and we know what's needed. But some products just need a little bit longer because they you want the flavours to meld. You want the lovely su- supple fats to do what they're going to do. And a good air-dried ham is one that's matured properly in the right condition so it's got the right airflow the right temperature around it it's got the right cultures in there etc so really hard to ramp up supply then if all of a sudden very hard uh, and you don't know till you open a ham what's happened on the inside of it because they're quite big pieces so until you open it you really don't know what you've got and you have to do that then before you uh, send it out sometimes not sometimes they order a whole ham I mean I've never had one return so I think we're okay (laughs) (laughs) but yes I do worry sometimes and then you get people coming to say to you well I've made an air dried ham and I've stuck it in a tree and it's all very romantic and they said what do you do when you get maggots in the middle I said well I don't know we've never had that problem (laughs) (laughs) but it's a romantic ideal I think people have stick it in a tree and of course the flies would love that yeah probably don't need to and then sometimes you use lots of um, herbs and spices and sometimes you smoke so what you know what what defines what sort of products well my husband comes up with these wonderful recipes Um, with every single recipe we grind the herbs and spices up fresh because although we could buy big vats of herbs and mix it all up Herbs and spices get a very musty flavour very quickly. And if you grind them up, so you buy whole juniper berries or whole allspice or whole peppers, whatever it is, by grinding them all up with each each recipe making, you get lovely bright flavours, lovely fresh flavours. And those then go into the cure together with the, the curing salts and fermentation cultures. Um, and, and by doing that, you, you, you really then end up with something that should have a good balance of flavour. We very, we very rarely smoke. We smoke, uh, we smoke mutton. We smoke our duck, um, we smoke um, the pastrami that we make, uh, and we smoke, uh, yes, the duck breast, I think I've already said. Um, but actually, most of our products are air-dried, pure and simple. So all the ones I've described to you are dried, but they're also smoked. And what we try to do, we try to say to you, we don't want you to taste it and say, oh, that's smoked. We want you to taste it and say, Mm, there's a lot of flavours in there, not quite identifying what those flavours are because each one is subtle enough for, to add to the meat, to make it into something splendid, we hope, um, but not to overpower it. And for that reason, we tend to use beech. We might be asked to do alder if we're doing a, a suckling pig, say, for Christmas because that's a nice, gentle flavour. Um, but beech is a soft, sweet flavour. Oak is used by a lot of people, but it's very strident. It can be a very overpowering flavour. Flavor. And if you oversmoke with oak, you get a very tarry, very bitter taste. So we tend to reserve that for the cheeses that people bring in for us to smoke. So mm. beach, yes, lovely. Nice. <laughs> and that's one of the other things you've ended up doing, where you've got this amazing smoker that you showed me earlier, and it's an yes. impressive uh, bit of kit, and quite an old girl, 1970, did you say? 1970, yes. Yeah. We kick her a bit sometimes yeah, to get her going. But... <laughs> so you do do some smoking for other people with cheeses? Yes, it's it's quite nice. We get cheesemakers coming in, bringing their cheeses. Um, some of them bring in uh, fresh cheeses to smoke, and they can be smoked and then matured. Some people bring in mature cheese and we can smoke those relatively quickly. Some people bring mild cheeses and they take a bit longer to smoke. Um, and they, they can choose what wood they want. So we take one wood out and put, they often want oak, so we can put oak in there. Um, they might ask for cherry wood or they might ask for, for, for other woods and, and we just, we have those and we put those in yeah. if that's what they want. Depends well, what flavour they're after. Yeah, when you get that right, it's incredible, I think. And I was yeah. saying, yeah. we had some uh, amazing mussels just cooked over one of our um, Yospa barbecues. Yum, yum. And, uh, and yeah, just really quick, just done in a little yeah. basket over 
over coals. Yeah. And if you were trying it and you hadn't been told how it had been cooked, you would get exactly that. You'd get this slightly just more intense kind of sweetness and flavour. And you think, yeah, you think, what have they done? How have they done <laughs> yeah. that? And it was just that simplicity of a little bit of smoke as it was cooked really fast. So yeah, get get that right. It's That's an incredible. It. Get it wrong, and like you say, it can be quite. Uh, Quite horrible. Um, you've supplied some uh, amazing chefs. Your products have been, you know, up to up to London and in lots yeah. of cool restaurants. Um, any any particularly uh, interesting stories or people you've been particularly proud or where you've seen your product and gone, oh, oh my god, well, that's amazing! I can't we, believe it. <laughs> we get exciting things. I mean, sometimes we've sold something to a wholesaler and he's taken things and we don't always know where they've gone. But you'll suddenly discover that, uh, for example, the rugby football internationals in the autumn and the spring. Tom Kerridge is is up there. I understand. Um, and he's running the sort of private dining that goes on. And he ordered half a ton of smoked mutton and air dried beef. So, hey, wow. <laughs> there they ton. were. Yes, it, it was, we did it. We did it. We got really? it out. And uh, we're trying to get ahead of them. Uh, so that goes out there. And that's great fun. And we do get to play with quite a few well-known chefs. And, and sometimes they come and see you to learn. Yes. Uh, yes. We get quite a few here. And sometimes they bring cameras with them and we get filmed, really? which is good fun. Nice. So we, and, and you get a good lunch. We, we give them a good lunch. We, all, yes, yeah. we, yes. As we you try. did with me today. Yes. I've never been so spoiled. I've never arrived to do an interview and been fed and watered so well. I'm even having a beer as I say. Absolutely. Lovely, What's so. life without a beer? Yeah, no, it's perfect on uh, on such a sunny day. Um, so with, with kind of what you've learned over the last uh, decade, anything that you would have, uh, anything you would have done differently knowing what you know now? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, actually, there have been years when I've thought, when people say, oh, I'm starting a business, what would you recommend? And mm. I would have said, do you know what? Don't, Don't. do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's you. Ha if you can start a business and have some funding behind you, it takes a lot of the pain out of it. Um, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to fund a business. And that's been, I think, the most challenging thing. There's an ebb and flow of cash that you can't begin to understand until you run a business. And that has been the hardest thing. But there are lots of high points. There are times when you perhaps win an award or somebody comes to film you for one of the big chefs on TV. And then then it's exciting. Um, and then you, you you get to talk to people who do exotic things. And then you, you get phone calls from Hong Kong and they want to import it. Well, we don't actually send stuff out there, but sorry about the dogs. <laughs> um, but there are high points and there are low points. Um, we get to give a lot of talks, which can be quite good fun. You meet a lot of people. I must say people has been the nicest bit of all of this. We, we've, we've come across some very engaging, very entertaining types. And I think you're going on to interview one of my favourite uh, later on at Sea Spring Sea. Right. So yeah, you've got Michael and Joy. Yeah. Oh, the chilies. Well, Michael's a real character, and yeah. the food business is full of characters. Exactly the point. Nice. I'll probably use that as a clip at some point because this is called the Humans of Hospitality yes. podcast because of that. Because yes. I don't think people appreciate the the kind of the knowledge and the work and if and everything yeah. everything you've just told me and everything I learn every time I speak to somebody behind the yeah. scenes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The amount of love and when you talk about the fat and the rebries, you know, I, I yes. knew none of that. And well, we I, we got filmed. We we've we've got we were filmed by um, a chef that's not heard of quite so much, I think, but he's wonderful. Uh, Valentine Warner, Val Warner, and it was like feeding Tigger. He literally bounced around Brilliant. the table eating everything. I mean, that, that's what you get. You get this enthusiasm yeah. and energy. And, you know, it is exhausting running a business. I won't pretend that it isn't. But sometimes you're so energised by what goes on. It, it's great. It's really fun. Yeah. yeah. And I think people in hospitality generally, if it's around food and drink, we're, we're predisposed to, to give other people pleasure. You know, yes. we want to look after them. So yes. your warm welcome today straight away <laughs> reminds me of why, you know, it's such an incredible industry and why that, you know, I don't want it to be turned into a Commodity where we lose that, That's and just it. the big brands That's end it. up dominating it, and it, it, then it's then it's about money. It's about Whereas hospitality money. was never about money. Hospitality no. was been going on for multi generations. It was just you just used to open your door and well, welcome in your neighbour and break bread and, and drink wine and, and chat. It's such and, uh, fun. But yeah. we, I mean, we know other charcuterie producers like Cornish Charcuterie who produce it, but they also have a, a rum making facility, which is wonderful. Excellent. So we we cover the table in all sorts, and it, it's brilliant fun. Um, so you do get to know some wonderful people making yeah. wonderful. The humans of hospitality. Yes, yes. Um, and then you, you touched on it then very briefly. So are we uh, exporting at all as a country, Shakuta? I love I love it when we start sending things back to the continent that we've always got from them. If, are you doing it or is anybody else in the country doing We're it? We're not aware at of? the moment, mainly because it's hard and difficult. We have right. enough on our plate. <laughs> hard and difficult are two great reasons not to do something. Not, <laughs> very, very good reasons to do it. You have to fill out health certificates and things. Right. Um, but we do get a lot of inquiries. Um, and I think with Brexit coming up, it, depending on which way it goes, I get the impression that there are companies abroad who'd be very very interested to own British charcuterie companies 
just so they still have a foothold here. Okay. So yes, I think we probably I think will by the time be exporting this goes things. Out, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll we'll know, know where, where we're we are. At. We're on the yes. cusp, whichever way yes. um, it goes. But it'd be nice, particularly if we're doing something different. You mentioned the song at the smoked mutton. I think it's you know we're a really exciting time for British food yes. because 20 years yes. ago we didn't have a very good reputation for food and now we've got a phenomenal reputation. I'm really proud of the UK. Superb and how, and the speed at yeah. which we've gone from being considered you know only having roast beef pies and fish and chips yes. to actually having some of the best restaurants and the best chefs oh, in the world and the innovation that's going on. You walk down on, any so. street in London any street or go yeah. to go to your wonderful restaurants Urban yeah. Reef and all yeah, these yeah, wonderful yeah. things you know you get to try some amazing food done with passion yeah. local ingredients all of that. Yeah perfect. I yeah. think you've probably answered this as to which bit of the business gives you the most passion and the most excitement it sounds like it it's is other the, people. the people that you've met it's other yeah. people more yes. so than yes. just uh, and farmers chomping. who love their animals yeah. all of that yeah yes. the farmers work hard don't they behind the oh, scenes they do. so it's they, very they really hard it's very hard to um, Kerry Cryer the dairy farmer who and again, it's obvious when she mentions it, but she says, you know, since 1910, this uh, breed of pedigree cows they've had have had to be milked every day. Yes. By hand, Every probably. day. Yeah. You know, winter, summer, yeah. whatever, since 1910, twice a day. Yes. And, and, That's and a very no old cow off. from 1910. Yeah, 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 it wasn't the same cow. I don't think. I should have checked. Yeah, a very wise cow just sat there stroking its chin. Uh, but you think that's a phenomenal amount of work and you yeah. can't switch it off. And I think yeah. that's the other thing with being, no. with being self-employed, isn't it? You it can't, is. Uh, you can't pause it. So, no. Um, so with all that you've got going on, and, and it, it seems to have continued to expand, you haven't kind of just sort of sat back and gone, okay, this is nice. You know, we've got a few suppliers, <laughs> we've got a few restaurants happy. You seem to have this constant strive to do more. What's the reason for that? Is it necessity or you just no, have this sort of passion, desire? I think, to... well, a lot of it's driven by David. I'm sorry he's not in the interview. You've only got me, <laughs> but uh, he he cannot help himself he has to be working on the next recipe sometimes I have to sit on him a little bit and just say we have too many products yeah. you know um but it you know it, there are so many possibilities out there they're endless and you know we're, we're buying these amazing animals from these amazing farmers who have these animals on amazing British land I mean our soil our grass our wildflowers are producing these fantastic pieces of meat i'm sorry vegetarians but that's what's happening um and we should be using it I and mean, the possibilities have barely barely been touched um and also you know if you look at the market for charcuterie when we started 10 years ago i don't know what the stats look like now but when we started only one percent of what was made in this country was being eaten in this country one percent you know if you go to italy or you go to france they have a charcuterie in every village sometimes they have two or three there is room for all of us. And if people can think in terms of, well, if I buy something that's beautifully made from an English pig or an English duck or an English, or sorry, Scottish, Welsh, whatever, but but from these beautiful British Isles uh, that has been produced with love, actually, you're getting something with provenance, you're getting something that's made with care, and you're helping these great islands of ours to produce more and more of what's really, really good. Mm. And I think we do have a, a better reputation for animal welfare than we a lot of countries. Definitely, you know, still in Europe, I believe, but certainly further afield than that. That presumably adds to the cost of the overall product. Are you, do, is there it a lot does. of cheap imports in um, your field? Or? There are a lot of cheap imports, and yes, it does add to the cost. So really the customer always needs to understand why it's expensive. They need to understand that it's a slow process. We haven't been speeding things up with chemicals or anything else um, and that we're buying animals that have been bred slowly and beautifully. It is difficult. And I do also take issue with Europe because um, if you go to Lombardy where they have a, uh, they have a, a, a protected status for Brasaula, if you go to Lombardy and you look down in the valley, there is factory after factory after factory producing this special beef, producing tons and tons and tons. And if you say to them, where is this coming from? They don't say, oh, it's lovely Italian meat. They say, oh, it comes from Argentina and it comes from Holland and it comes from blah, blah, blah. So they have a protected status for something that isn't that special. Whereas I can go to somebody with their PGI beef. If I go to Washington Farm Shop, we're buying their beautiful Devon, Ruby Devons. I know that I'm getting a grass-fed, beautiful, rare breed animal that is bred on that farm. So I know exactly what I'm getting for my Dorset air-dried beef, <laughs> whereas they do not in Lombardy necessarily. Up in the mountains they might do. They might still be producing the best products. 
but that's what that's what is going on in Europe. So, um, you know, some of these Dutch meats are crated. It, it's it's hideous. I, I wouldn't wish to use any of it. I think it's terrible meat, and I really would hate to be any of those animals. I think mm. it's wrong. And what's when you mention uh, PGI? Sorry, what's PGI beef? Protective geographical uh, status, something like <laughs> okay, that. I don't know fine. what the I stands for. So what does it mean in reality, though? That they're... what it means is that it's had to it's had to come from a particular part of the country. So West Country PGI has to come from the five counties: Cornwall, Devon, Dorset, Somerset, Gloucestershire. So it has to come from there, and it has to be grass fed. Yeah. So it doesn't mean it's outside all year because the weather is not good in the winter, but yeah. it has to have been out for a yeah. certain period. We all like to go inside occasionally, I think, yes. don't we? Yes, so, yes. Um, how do we get people then? It's, uh, it, it is the kind of point of this conversation and the fact that I, I hope it's education. But yes. it's not necessarily, I don't think, that people don't want to know. Sometimes I think, how do, how do we get them to know? But, yes. you know, that, that, what you just said then about, you know, some of the, some of the other products that can come in mm-hmm. from overseas. And, and the closer we can get to the suppliers, the more we can know yes. about who is the human being behind this. This yes. product the better um do you think that's improving or getting worse and how do we have an impact on it i think it's getting a lot better every chef we sell to says so where does this piece come from tell me about it i really believe that people want the story they want to understand what they're eating they want to know where it's come from we're finding that more and more and more and it's great please always ask where your food comes from because if you understand that then you'll understand so much more about what keeps our country looking the way it does we won't have these fields if people stop buying british farmed meat they're only there because people have farms um if there's no reason for them to do it, then the countryside won't look as you all expect it to look. It's terribly important. Um, so, yes, I think it's important to ask where your food comes from. And by knowing where it comes from and asking, you are contributing very much to what goes on in this country. And long may it last. May it grow. May we continue to buy from these poor farmers who are struggling to make ends meet because that's the way things are. And we get these cheap imports coming in um, and We can't compete with them on the same level, on price, but we can compete in that we're producing a better, more magnificent product. So I've I've got to ask as well, because obviously this has been a very sort of meat-orientated conversation, what's your thoughts on the vegetarian kind of side of stuff? And and again, where there's been these changes, um, more people kind of being conscious of of, of vegetarian, and how do we deal with that as well? I think it all has its place. I really do. I mean, I I think as a nation we probably eat a little bit too much meat, um, and it's not always healthy. And I do think also the vegan movement, I think it's producing some really interesting recipes because with meat, you tend to have some fairly traditional ideas of how you cook it or how you serve it or whatever. Um, and if you've always done things in a French way, then that's what you're going to do. You might not then go out and look for something slightly more innovative when you're serving a, a dish. That's not true of all my chefs. A lot of them are doing some fantastic things. Um, but I think because the, the vegan movement's fairly new, there's some really quite exciting flavours coming through. And I must admit, I do eat the odd vegetarian meal myself because I work with meat, so sometimes I don't always feel like eating it. Um I I do find it a little difficult if I'm selling, you know, standing on a stall somewhere. I have been shouted at by vegans and I'm sorry that they feel they have to do that. But actually most people, I think, would say, yes, I'll eat a bit of everything. And I, I think that's pretty healthy. And I think if people understand that the meat you're buying is carefully brought up and dealt with then I don't think it should be a problem I think Mm. it's if it's intensively reared and it's in a crate and it can't even sit down then yes I would take issue with that but if it's a beautiful farm produced animal that's had a very good life then I have no problem with it at all and the most of the farmers that you meet locally kind of share that I suppose there seems to be this this contradiction between the pressure on yield and intensive farming and this need Mm. to supply the supermarkets but most farmers I speak to have this genuine desire to kind of you know, to do good and to run a Most nice farm. Most of country farm. folk. Yeah, exactly. And, and they, they want, want the bees the and they want the birds and they yeah, want to I sympathise as to how they get that balance. But yes. you you probably get to see and speak to a lot more than I do. Yes. Is it, you know, yes. do, you, do you, again, do you think that that's shifting? Do you think there's more kind of concern around animal welfare and all that kind I of think, stuff? I think so. I mean, I think you will always have the intensively reared because when you have supermarkets selling three chickens for £10, nobody yeah. actually understands 
that to have a free-range chicken is a very expensive thing because you've had to clear woodland and you've had to pen it in and you've had to make sure the fox can't get in and you've had to make sure that it's eating worms or whatever it's eating. But it, it, it's an expensive thing to produce and it's, 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 an, it's a bird that doesn't want to live very long. It, it, it's very good at killing itself, I hate to say it. Um, so so it's, it's quite hard to, to do it properly but those who do do it properly produce the most amazing meats um but the problem we have is that because the perception is that it's a cheap meat nobody will pay those prices for it and it's very hard for anyone to make a living at it yeah it's a shame isn't it, it again is i don't know how we uh how we overcome it the amount that we spend on food now has yeah. dropped from you know 30 percent to well, perhaps the, perhaps the thing to do is, you know, people always used to buy a lovely roast for Sunday and they'd be mm. prepared to spend a bit on that. Yeah, perhaps say, actually, I will have a couple of vegetarian meals during the week yeah. and then on Sunday I will have a free-range chicken or yeah. I will do something splendid and mm. have something from old Farmer Joe's down the road there, you know. I was chatting to Giles, who I know you know from Olives et al, and yes. we were having that conversation around price and that in luxury cars people appreciate the difference between, you know, maybe a Ford Fiesta and a Ferrari and they don't really argue with the difference no. in price, no. but maybe with a packet of olives they think a packet of olives is a packet of olives and no. Actually, no, there's no. such a difference yes. between, you know, one level and, and the same in your trade and in so many, to be fair, and in our milk and everything else that we buy. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So um, as you've been in, in uh, business for a longer time, and again, you alluded to this earlier about some of the stuff you hear and the relentlessness of business. Um, any particular advice that you've heard people be given in business where you thought, oh, my God, you know, I've been doing this for years. That is a rubbish bit of advice or the flip side, anything really good where you kind of hear it and you go, yes, absolutely. You've clearly, you know, you've walked the talk. You get it. What advice would I give? Um, or not give. <laughs> or not give. I think, I, I, well, I said about being well-funded, and I, I really mean that. I mean, don't be too quick to get investors in and hand all your business away. But it would have helped us immensely had we had a bit more money behind us. Uh, we had a bad situation where we owned a house um, that we rented out and unfortunately the tenant decided to shoot himself in the house. Uh, we didn't know the, the fellow, but he was an aristocrat um, and I think his daughter went out with Prince Harry or something. So the press got hold of it. So the price of the house went down and down and down and we lost £85,000 on the house when we finally did sell it. But we couldn't rent it, we couldn't sell it. Um, so it actually meant we started with nothing and we were having to build up from nothing so we have paid top dollar for everything we've we've lease purchased things or we've taken out loans or whatever and it's such an expensive way to do it had we not had to do that had we started with enough money to kickstart the thing and perhaps made a few better decisions um we probably would have been in profit earlier than we were, than we were. So it was really, really hard. Um, I have to say that uh, the banks are not helpful. They are very unhelpful if you're starting a business. But if you do decide that you need to borrow, make sure you have a very good business case. And by a bit, good business case, I mean that you actually look at the costs. You actually ask questions of people in the same business. Some of them won't tell you things, but a lot of people are very honest and will talk to you. But but find out, do your research. Don't just think, I'm going to make jam or whatever it happens to be. A lot of people have trodden these paths and a lot of people have gone out of business. So look around you. Try and find something that's a little bit niche if you possibly can. I mean, you don't have to put beetroot in a marmalade or something, or maybe it works. I don't know. But 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 try and find something that, that is going to work. There are fashionable things that go in and out of fashion. So if it can be something that perhaps has a certain longevity, then you'll be okay. Try and make sure that you have a good web presence. That's terribly important. The first thing a chef does if they buy from us is go to the website to make sure that we really are there. I don't know why we really are still here, but um, so that there is all of that. Um, watch out for, there are some sharks out there who will do all sorts to you, especially offering to lend you money and things. So be very careful. Um, if you do decide to borrow money, do look at some of the contemporary ways of doing it. And by contemporary, I mean going to companies like Zopa or Funding Circle. Funding Circle is quite expensive. Um, all these people are, but you are doing a peer-to-peer -peer borrowing or lending. Um, and it's where people come in and they say, oh, I'm going to have a punt and I'm going to put a thousand pounds here or 200 there or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and I think that that's where money is coming from for a lot of businesses now. So do look at those. Uh, you can also look at, um, you know, crowdfunding, which which is looks quite fun. I must have a go at that. 
Uh, and I have heard of people like BrewDog having a great success. I mean, many millions of pounds worth of success with that. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. I think you have to do your research and understand. But also other advice would be to go to your local councils and say, what grants have you got? Um, they have specific grants. And there are usually business groups that will guide you through the processes to make sure you don't ask for something that you're never going to get because you're not doing it properly. Um, but, but don't be afraid to look around and do good searches and ask people in business what it is they find. We've all made mistakes, fabulous, enormous, expensive mistakes. And if anyone can just cut out a year or two of your mistakes, then you might stay in business. It is hard. I won't pretend it's easy. But if you get it right, it can be fun. When business is working, it can be fun. It can be hell, but it can be fun. That's the most uh, comprehensive, impressive answer I've ever had to that question. <laughs> Sorry, probably too much. No, there were some great little nuggets in there. I thought, I wish I'd listened to that before I started. Yes, I wish ago, I'd so. listened to it. I yeah. would never have started. I think there'll be plenty of people like that. You clearly, uh, yeah, like I say, have, have, have learned it and uh, and properly walked it. Um, talking of funding very briefly, so you clearly got lots of ideas on funding. Have you had to use any? Are the banks better now with you the as an established worse. business? They're they are worse, worse even and though worse. you've got yes. an established business. Banks, really? yes, uh, the banks are... Don't name I, them, I get into trouble I, I'm not going to name them. <laughs> no, uh, I really wouldn't. I wouldn't go to them as your first port of call. Mm -hmm. What I would do for first port of call is to get a business case together, which is terribly important, to see where your expenses are. Don't fall into the trap of going and think, well, I'm running a business, I'd better get a beautiful logo down and lovely cards and a nice big car. No. Get the things that help you to run your business, the bowls for making your, your, your jam or whatever it happens to be. Buy the essentials first. Shop around for everything. You will run out of time. It gets very hard to shop around for everything. But if you can set time aside for that, you'll save yourself a lot of money. I've forgotten the question. I'm no, so no, sorry. No, I'm, just, I'm nodding. I'm in the process of building a restaurant at the moment and yeah. time is always uh, the issue. So especially in seasonal towns, so, yes. you know, we're in Bournemouth on the yes. coast, we have to hit the summer and the speed that you end up working to, to and, and yeah, and it means you don't always get the best price and you no. can't negotiate with the trades no. because you're like, actually, I need to open in six weeks. Yeah. I think we were on, we, you know, we got 39 days until we open. Oh, good luck. Uh, My you. gosh, stress uh, and you're here interviewing yeah, me. Yeah, it's a, it's a And what's it going to be called? Is this the, called... the one with the pineapple logo? Uh, yeah, they've all got pineapples in them. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you know the story of the pineapple? No. Tell me. Oh, I'll mention it very briefly because I mentioned it in the trailers. I mentioned it the, but basically, yeah, back in the day um, in the Americas, when the when the captains of the ship would often be gone um, out at sea for a few months because they'd be on the trade route, so they might be buying the uh, the kind of the fruits or the or the coffees or the the uh, spices and the salts and the peppers and all that kind of stuff. But they'd be out in the tropics and they'd see these amazing fruits. Pineapple, such a unique fruit that you wouldn't see back at home. <laughs> and it became a tradition that they would um, they would bring the, a, a pineapple or bring a number of pineapples back to their village oh. and they would stake a pineapple to their wooden front door and it meant that I'm uh, I'm back from my travels and I've got lots of good booze and lots of good food and lots of good stories my door is open please oh, come in fantastic. and it became a tradition that or it would be carved into yeah exactly yeah <laughs> it would be carved into bedsteads and it would put outside inns and a lot of door knockers you'll see it on bottles of uh, certain gins and if you ever go up to London to any of the trade shows you'll often find um, some sort of sort of pineapple in the in reception I'm trying to think of the big vats for the kind of drinks and stuff like that. So yeah, pineapple is a traditional, a traditional symbol of hospitality, Fantastic. basically. But the uh, yeah, the new restaurant's called, uh, called um, Urban Garden. You never know; it might be open when this goes out. Fantastic! We will we come move, and have a, but, have a look. Uh, but yeah, but you were asking about first port of call for money. Um, to, you know, if you've got a business case, you can approach family. What I would say about family and friends is do it on a business basis. Don't mm. just say to your mum, "Could you just lend me twenty thousand pounds, mum, please?" Because poor lady, that's probably her pension fund. Yes. What you say to her is, "Mum, I'd like to borrow from you." And we'll pay you back on a business rate, and then she's happy, you're happy. Yeah. It's all it's all done properly. I, I did exactly that. My parents yeah. had made the mistake of paying off their house shortly yeah. before I went into business, and I, I wrote a proper business case, and I came, and I was like, "Look, I don't actually <laughs> want to borrow any money from you, but can I use your house as uh, collateral, as collateral with yes. the bank?" And uh, yes. yeah, big decision for them, but great yeah. motivator for yeah. me because fundamentally, if I mess the business up, yes. then they could lose their house. Yes. And I had back out strategies, and we had a legal document written up, and Good. it was agreed that we'd you know we'd repay it and. Uh, yeah, we're nearly there, actually. I think 14 for years you. later, there's still a little bit um, yeah. tied up in the business. But yeah, exactly that. You know, yeah, yeah family help, invaluable. Um, but yeah, do get it. Do get it drawn up. So uh, what's next then? What's the next uh, plans? Do you know what, what, what where, well, where are you going to be in 10 years' time? Oh, my gosh, dead probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we, we, we are very small. 
Um, we have a barn at the end of the garden where we make everything, but we regularly now run out of room. Um, so we are looking at how we can perhaps make a little bit more space for ourselves. Um, we're looking around at ways of making things a little bit easier. So for retail, we're trying to find uh, some modified atmosphere packing machines that will allow us to uh, not have to do quite so much by hand um, when we're packing for, for, for the shops and make something that's easier for people to serve. Um, so that's that's on the cards. I don't think retirement is quite on the cards because obviously we've we've tied everything up in the business and we need to be sure that we can we can get it out. David and I are not really ready to retire. I say, it doesn't sound like, yeah, seeing your energy and uh, hearing what I hear about David, <laughs> I can't imagine that uh, retirement's <laughs> going to come. You will have far too many ideas. You'll be yes. you'll be bored. Yes. And it's it's, and it's, uh, it's lovely. You it's can go lovely. out and sit on your wonderful terrace and watch the sunset <laughs> over the uh, over the countryside down here in Dorset. So, yeah. um, where can people go if, if people want to buy your product? Obviously, lots of bars and restaurants. So I say lots. Obviously, you're, you're, you say it's all <laughs> relatively small. But can they buy direct on your website as well? Yes, or? we have a, a website. I'm sorry that I have to spell things out because it's rather a, a strange name, but it's Capriolus Fine Foods. If you can't remember that. If you look up uh, the Latin name for the roe deer, it's Capriolus Capriolus. Um, and so once you've found that, you can find Capriolus Fine Foods. We, we named it after the roe deer. We just thought it was a lovely name. Um, so if you look up Capriolus Fine Foods, I'm just working on a new website, which is going to be called Artisan English Charcuterie. .co.uk, but it might take me a little while to get that one up and running. Good luck. Um, and you're so on social that. media, did you mention Twitter? You yes, I've got well, a so? Twitter account, uh, Capriolus FF, which means fabulously fantastic <laughs> or something. Um, and we are on Facebook as well. Uh, I haven't quite got to Instagram. My children tell me I should do yeah, all that. Yeah, likewise. But... I've got an Instagram account, but I'm not very good at it. But I will put uh, in the show notes, so humansofhospitality.co.uk, I'll pop it in there as well. Thank all the links you so to, much. Uh, yes. to your website and stuff. It's been such a, 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 you know, a great kind of, you know, two or three hours, however long I've been here. Really nice to meet you at last. Thank you. And can so I thank you products. as well? Because, you know, you're interviewing me. You're interviewing some of these other wonderful food producers. This this matters. What you're doing matters. Um there are some amazing people out there doing some fabulous things. There are cheese makers and cider makers and bread makers. And I really hope that anyone listening to this will think, perhaps I'll go to a farmer's market this weekend, or perhaps I'll just go to the little deli and see what's around and try and support some of these businesses because we rely on you to like what we're doing and you're interviewing us and, and putting us out there. So thank you as well. No, thank you very much. That's very <laughs> kind to say. Uh, and yeah, that's exactly the point is can we get people to understand how much work and how much energy and how much time and how much love is going into it and where we spend our money literally does make a difference as the kind of world we're going to live in. So it's such an important message so thank you very much um, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, yeah I'll, I'll definitely you. come back uh, next, <laughs> next time I'm passing this beautiful part of the world good luck thank you so much So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.